from NPR. Friday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Welcome to the local edition news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole, but not for long. It's the first Tuesday of the month, and that means it's time for the Kingfisher Project. So I'm about to hand things off to Bill Williams for this month's interview. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, information and awareness about the heroin and opiate epidemic. I'm Julie Pazal. The Kingfisher Project began in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Jean Pazal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Okazalik, read an essay she wrote. It was about a bird, an injured kingfisher bird that she found and rescued when everyone else had given up on the bird. In that spirit, our community came together and formed the Kingfisher Project. Since 2014, we have been raising awareness about the drug and opiate crisis in our listening area and around the country, right here on Radio Catskill. Here is Bill Williams. Thanks, Julie. My guest today is Dick Morey. Right up front, let's full disclosure, Dick and I are high school buddies. We've known each other for 63 years. So if you think we're both ancient, we are. There are several large and important organizations that work endlessly to help us as a nation overcome substance abuse. There are countless smaller funds, memorials, and movements, often prompted by the untimely death of a single addict. It is my belief that the reach of these smaller groups where the particulars of an individual story are known can reach more deeply, can connect with individuals in a way that perhaps eludes the larger organizations. The story that comes home when it happens to your neighbor next door. Substance abuse is, ha- abuse is happening next door in Gillette, Wyoming. That's where our guest Dick Morey lives. My guest is Dick Morey, a high school classmate and friend for over 60 years. Dick grew up in Connecticut, found his way to Wyoming, and has created a successful career as an entrepreneur in the energy field. A recent essay about Dick cites that, quote, over the last 30 or more years, he has fostered more than 20 children. He lives in a community that has both extreme wealth and extreme poverty, and many of his kids suffer from abuse, addiction, or both. One of his gifts as a parent to these children was understanding them as individual human beings. His empathy was accompanied by action. He provided structure, support, and love. As he modestly says, most have made it. He has funded college and graduate schools tuitions and helped a handful start their own businesses. His impact has been enormous for these people, but also on the community. When asked why he took on the work of fostering children, he said, it was the right thing to do, and I could do it. Welcome, Dick. I'm so proud to call you my friend and have you on this show. Thanks, Bill. Tell us how you got started at all. I mean, there must, there had to have been a first, so let's start there. Well, I I uh, came out here in 1975 uh, to, to Gillette, and it was a boom town. That's why I came. You could get a good job. I worked in the construction business. I worked in the oil and gas industry. But, but I had a good college education and pretty good uh, background. I was lucky in life. And so those skills turned out to be pretty valuable in this town. <clears throat> And I built a construction business that got up to be about uh, about 60 guys working for me and, and 40 machines. And, and a number of them, they were from South Dakota, they were from Montana, they were from Colorado. Uh, uh, 
North Dakota, and they all came here the same reason I did for an opportunity. But but it was a typical boomtown in that it has negative side, uh, dysfunctional families, alcoholism, drug addiction, lots of problems. So early on, I was in something called the Yes House, which is a youth emergency services. And that was I donated my time and, and some money to, to that cause, along with uh, some of the local guys, some bankers, some lawyers, that kind of thing. And during that time, um, a number of guys who worked for me had tough family situations. And so sometimes I would work with their family about some of their issues. And so that kind of word got around that I could help. And so I I kind of worked with a uh, really good counselor. He was a guy from a, a broken family himself, and he and his wife uh, uh, were really good folks. And so almost all the kids I worked with, one of the rules was they had to go through this counselor, and I would pay for it. Uh, but they had to go, and they had to be honest. And so they did. And then... Um, some could deal with it. We could do it with, with coffee and sandwiches, and, and some was much more serious. And so we structured a system where um, we used the outpatient counseling, which was two or three days a week. You went in for probably an hour and a half every evening, and they would uh, um, have group uh, group therapy. And, and that worked for some, not for others. Uh, some had to go to inpatient. Uh, some we, we sent to drug court. Uh, some had to go to incarceration. Some did. Uh, not, I, I remember with one of the kids I worked with for many years. He's now 55. In fact, I just got off the phone with him. He's, he's uh, got a new job and he's a great dad, but he went through a lot of struggles. And oddly enough, what helped him the most was being incarcerated in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is which is a, a very rough community in itself. But he spent seven months in the prison over there. And when he got out all my all the money and time and effort we'd all spent trying to get him to move ahead kind of clicked and now he's become a very solid guy and that was the story everyone some kids they could deal with it two or three sessions some kids would get over the year some 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 had about 30 years it's just how it is and and one size just doesn't fit all for sure when you say kids are we talking mostly teenagers young teens uh that found their way to you Mostly late teens. Um, what you found was that the, the family could handle them. The, sometimes it was a single mother. Sometimes it was a single dad. Sometimes it was a it was a kind of a group a family situation with no no adult around, and the older kids were raising them. And, and so they could handle them to a certain age, and then as they got to mid and late teens, especially when they were using heavily, they they couldn't be controlled. And so that's usually when the pipeline would say, okay, "Can you meet with this guy or this gal?" And so we'd meet at the Perkins, have coffee, and we'd have lunch, and we'd talk. And if, if there was, if I could help or if they were interested in being helped, we would take the next step. If they weren't, that was certainly their call. Um, I, I, uh, I, I understood from an early age that I had a mother who was an alcoholic. And so I understood addiction pretty well. And I studied a lot in, in college, and I studied in seminary. Um, so I, I understood people with addiction. I didn't know that was going to be what I was going to spend a lot of my time doing. And, and I also was working 10 or 12 hours a day at my work. So it, it was a balance of stuff. Uh, but the kids were well worth it. And, and to this day, I remember the last one I, I worked, took in, his father had been killed on a, on a Harley. He just bought a new Harley. He's a great guy. Had four kids. Went on his Harley and was killed. And uh, got all the kids into counseling. But one of them wouldn't go. 
and he said, you're going to have to counsel me. I'll meet you at Perkins once a week. So we met for a year, and he was still doing drugs. He was still a pretty wild guy, but a good guy. And uh, finally, he and his current wife, um, who they've been married for eight years, moved into my house. And uh, um, and then I sent them off to college down at Laramie. And, and uh, he went clean and sober strictly through uh, sheer willpower and through counseling with me and his wife. He's got a terrific wife who's, who's a CPA now. I mean, all these kids have kind of risen up, got rid of their drug addiction. They're really good parents today. Um, and most are really good partners with their, with their spouses. Uh, you know, th- that's probably all I've accomplished in my life, which has been fine with me. You know, it's hardly all. You, you, you're most modest about it. You mentioned the Perkins twice. Uh, are we talking a, a, a restaurant or a social yeah, club or restaurant where you can get? It's kind of a working class restaurant that I like, uh, and so you can get a nice go and get a meal. You can get sometimes these kids wouldn't have eaten for a couple of days, so I'd say, well, let's go counsel, and they say, oh, I don't want to be counsel. I said, well, let's meet at Perkins. We'll eat. Well, they were willing to eat, so we'd eat and talk, and it was a much more comfortable way to talk about some of the issues and some of the problems and the plan for what's the next step. It sounds to me we would describe what, what you're doing. If we were talking in today's terms, uh, we'd call it harm reduction. Yeah, and, and I'm pretty honest by nature, and so I would kind of get right to the right to the bed, especially later on. Early on, I, I thought I could do it all by being a nice guy. Well, that only works to a little extent. As I got older, it was much more confrontational and much more, you know, you have a serious problem. What are we going to do about it? I'm willing to help, but if you're not... Um, Let's not let's not fake it. Let's just move on. Although you don't have a degree in counseling, it seems that you have a uh, um, a, a talent for it. Where do you, how do you think you acquired it? You know, it's interesting. There's a guy named John Bradshaw who was a roaring alcoholic, and uh, uh, he was a Episcopal priest, and he was a, he was uh, came highly recommended from another counselor friend of mine who was also a lawyer. And, he, and she said, you've got to, you've got to study. This guy's got great tapes. Get in his tapes and watch him. And that was, oh, gosh, 35 years ago. And it, that really was a huge help. Uh, he, he dealt with his whole problems, and then he put it on tape. And, and uh, it really helped me. It's helped a lot of counselors and a lot of the kids. But you're talking about these are not nice, delicate kids. They, these are pretty tough folk. Um and then I'm a big, strong guy. I there was I was never scared, but I mean I broke up plenty of fights. I, I uh, you know you get in the middle of that stuff. It's not it's not something I ever liked, <laughs> but it was something you had to do. Now, when you say when you say in the middle of fights, you're talking between uh, kid to kid or kid and parent or all of the above. It was always kid to kid, um, and and we had a rule. You know, some of them would, would crash at our house, and and. Uh, I just had a couple of rules. One which is you didn't fight, and the other one is if you wanted to hit me in the face, you better really all off and hit me because you weren't coming back. And they say you're gonna you're gonna beat me up. I'm not gonna touch you. I would never beat a kid, but you can't come back. You're done. And so no one ever hit me. I'm sure they were tempted a few times. Um, are there are there or were there kids who who you lost along the way who didn't make it? You know, we were terribly lucky. Two two were lost but came back, uh, uh, both of whom I liked very much. I, I would it, They would have been terrible, probably as hard as, as your funeral was for your son, Bill. They would have been terrible. 
I was really close to them, and I still am today. Uh, but they both were, were fortunately found by their friends. In, in both cases, they one was kind of had the Elvis syndrome. He was just horribly overused pills, and he just he passed out. But somebody called the medic, and and we uh, they recovered him. And then the second one was down in Denver, and he fell asleep on his back and and threw up and uh, was was gagging and dying. And somebody turned him over. Fortunately, otherwise we'd have lost two out of them. So. And today they're alive, good dads, and good mothers, and that's good enough for me. Um, we're talking, I'm on the Catskills here in Gillette, Wyoming. What can we here in the Catskills learn from you and, and people in Gillette? I, I, I think ours was trial by fire. This is a town where most of us came here with nothing. I, I remember when I left the driveway, my dad said to me, uh, do you need some money? I said, Dad, I'm, I'm loaded. I got 600 bucks. <laughs> I thought I was rich. And so and that's so everybody who came here at nothing. And we're just going through, you know, I'm 77 and uh, we're going through retirements with my friends who are attorneys, who are judges, who are uh, businessmen who, who sold their companies. And we all are very thankful for Gillette and we all owed the place. Uh, none of us would have been this uh, lucky somewhere. Would I have succeeded in Connecticut like I have? No. Uh, you know, I, my friends who, who succeeded were much smarter than I was. They were better students. They had certain other skills I didn't have. This was a great place to come if you didn't have much. And and the Catskills is a tougher place. It's a beautiful, it's much prettier than this place. It's a beautiful spot. I, the Catskills, I've been there, That which I lived there. It's a beautiful spot. But but the truth is, you, you don't have a lot of money. And so you have to use your brains probably more than we did. We used our we, everybody could write a check around here. So we built these really, we've got a yes house today that we couldn't even afford to rent 35 years ago. And, and now it's, you know, it's six huge buildings in Gillette. I mean, it's massive and it's, it's got its own processing plant. You know, we got 15, 20 people who work there and another 10 or 15 part-timers. I mean, it's, it's, we just had the capital to do all that and, and the, the desire to do it because almost everybody's been affected by these drugs. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, uh, I'm not. Re I'm reasonable on most things. I'm not reasonable about drugs. I just hate the whole thing. Over time, has there been a change in what, in, in what the drug of choice is, or the drugs you've seen? And and then I guess a corollary to that is, how do they arrive in Gillette? What is, is there a major highway that runs through town that helps with delivery? Yes, uh, this has become the cocaine, fentanyl, and and everything else place. Meth is still the drug of choice on the on the lower end and uh and and fentanyl and then the higher end is still cocaine and heroin um but there's there's very large uh south american and mexican community here i would say you know we might be 10 or 15 percent so maybe three or four thousand people uh from the south and so and and they're wonderful people i'm not being judgmental at all but um, there are some of them that are not good that are coming up in with the drugs. And, and there's a I-25 that just roars all the way up through Colorado. Most of it comes out of Denver. And so it comes up all the way through to Gillette. I remember I used to talk to my kids when I'd be bad one day. We always had group meetings. And I'd say, uh, couldn't you guys just drink beer like we used to? And, and they'd say, well, here's the problem. We can get, we can just walk out in the, in the high school parking lot, get any drug we want. You can't get beer. I mean, it was that simple. Yeah. Now they've got cameras all the time. You know, we've made a huge effort with cameras. We've made a huge effort with the police. But the trouble is, it doesn't seem to be solving the problem. The numbers are still horrible. Um, and 
you know, you're carrying one at a time. You, it's just, it's, it's very frustrating. And I'm sure it's the same in the Catskills. That's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so tell me a little more, tell us a little more about, about yes. Youth Emergency Services is a, uh, um, there's a really smart gal who I've, uh, uh, been friends with and crazy about forever for probably 40 years. And she and her husband had a very successful legal practice here. And he called me up one day and said, you got to be on this yes house board with me because and you got to get two or three of your four of your friends. We're broke. We're going to lose this thing. It had no funding. <laughs> and so I said, oh, I don't know anything about this, but I, I do every, I mean, I, I do the bankers. I knew the lawyers. I knew the judges. So I went to all of them and, uh, and we rounded up a crew of maybe seven or eight to go on this board. And so we would beg, borrow, and steal from the city of Gillette, from the county. They were wealthy, but none of them all kind of got it in those days. So we really had to pitch hard. But we ended up building, getting some banks of double wides and kind of living with a crappy building. And we had a terrific director who was grossly underpaid. And so one day, the same gal, Deb Michaels is her name. She's just brilliant. Um, she said, we've got to have a foundation. We got to, we got to back this thing financially. And so at that time she put together another board and they had fundraisers and they had raised dollars. <laughs> it's unbelievable what she's done. Uh, and never takes it. She doesn't, she didn't do it for any reason, but she's a good person. Um, and so they've, they've raised this enormous amount of money and built all these buildings, hired really good counselors. They even have a school, a little school there for the kids who just can't function in the local schools because of family situations. And it's just an amazing place. One of my granddaughters went there. Most of my grandkids have done wonderfully and they're just great. You know, they're the apple of my eye, of course. But a lot, a lot of them, a couple of them have struggled, uh, two were pretty serious addicts, but they both recovered. Uh, you know, I do believe there's a certain amount of genetics involved. Um, I don't know if everybody believes that, but I think it's the case. And so you, you, we knew we had to have a bigger solution. And so we could take a pretty big crew of, of problem kids and they're not necessarily just addicts. They're, they're, uh, mental health issues. There are broken families, all that kind of thing. Uh, we have a foster care system here that's good, but the yes house ha has trained personnel. It, it, uh, it's a really good system. Now, when you fostered a kid, what exactly did that entail? How much responsibility were you were you assuming for somebody's welfare? Um, I, I, you kind of took on the role as a as a surrogate parent. Um, it depended on their age, it depended on their maturity level, it depended on what their problems were. Um, and I worked really hard on some kids to get them out of it, and they I succeeded. Others I didn't do very much, and they succeeded phenomenally. So, so there's no simple answer to all that. I mean. I, I sent them a couple out to Cal State, uh, to college. I sent some out to Riverton is a good college for the, for the kids who are from the ranches. Uh, and they, they would rodeo there and then they go to junior college. And then if they could cut the mustard, they could handle Laramie. And so it was, uh, you know, you developed a system that kind of worked for, for, worked for most of the kids. Uh, and almost all of them did some college. Uh, the last two I sent down to Laramie and, uh, she just knocked her socks. I couldn't even believe it. She ended up back graduating magna cum laude in accounting and business. I mean, I would never have guessed that. And her spouse, um, it was more of a challenge down there, but he's now going to be an electrician. I mean, he's a really smart guy. 
he wasn't uh, he struggled in school but he was he's quite brilliant outside of school so you had to find that every kid's a little different that's just how it was um when when, when i say flustered were we was there any paperwork involved or was this a bit more casual for want of a better word you know, I didn't need any money from the from the state or the county, so I just didn't want to mess with the paperwork. Um, I, they they would give you a stipend. I said, "Why don't you give that to other people?" I I just uh, I, the money was not my problem. Time was probably more my, you know, the kids. I I would I would kind of structure when we'd meet. I, I uh, but but time was always scarce because I my business was very demanding, and I had I went through three marriages at that, so three really good relationships. And uh, the first one was great with the kids. The last two, not as good because they were more middle-class ladies. And the person was more from their world. And so they, she got along great with them when they were all young. But uh, the other two, uh, they weren't thrilled. <laughs> and it was just, uh, that house of mine was could be a little hectic at some time. Sometimes it was very, they liked the fact that I was boring. I was at work. I was at the <laughs> gym or I was restaurant. That was all I did. And so the time with them, they do, I made an effort to make their time. So they actually appreciated all the time I'd spent with them. Because they, fact, they, I, they could see it. It was that obvious to them. Oh, I'm pretty blunt. I think, you know, I, if you're going to just fool around, let's not bother with the counseling. Why don't you just, if you're going to go out and do drugs and chase girls, that's fine, which I don't approve of. But if you're not going to pay attention, I'll work with somebody who, who wants the time and the effort. Well, that usually straightened about. I'd say, well, what, let's meet on the track. Let's go walk three or four miles and talk. And that was a great counseling venue because it's very non-threatening. You're not. Uh, you're out in the wilds. So you're walking. You, you, and they would talk about stuff, that, their problems and their challenges. And very often they were the same things I'd heard three or four times. But they were. That meant they were processing it. They were dealing with it. And that that there was a high school track, oh maybe a half a mile from the house. So I'd say, well, I'm, I'm going to be down the track at three. If you want to do it, great. If you don't, I'll see you whenever. So they'd be there at three. <laughs> Worked out pretty well. And I'd say, now at the end of three miles, I'm going. So you, if you got something on your chance, talk about it. If you don't, uh, we'll do it next time. Well, sometimes the first time they wouldn't say much. <laughs> but And then I'd say, okay, I'll see you. If I got the second time at three o'clock, they were going to talk. If I'm correct, my understanding of where Gillette, Wyoming is, there might be certain times of year when you can't walk on the track because there's snow or ice or Lord knows well, what. That, that comes back to the fact that about 10 years ago, we decided that was an annoying problem. And so we built a $50 million facility that uh, with a huge track in it, two tracks, all these machines, weights, swimming pools, diving pools, everything. I mean, that's just the way we do stuff. <laughs> so it's a wonderful facility. They don't even charge for us old guys. How big is the what, what's the population of Gillette? Let's go back. What was it like when you arrived? In in what year? Roughly seventy five. So, when you arrived in seventy five, what was the population in Gillette, and what is it? What is it like now? And it, just rough numbers, if you know them. Yeah, it was thirty one hundred when I got here, and it's now probably thirty one thousand. Um, and and there are probably fifty thousand in the in the community. People have built. Um, I mean, you just wouldn't even recognize. I, I think there were two paved roads when I got here, and now everything's paved. I mean, it's just shocking the difference. I mean, there were there were two restaurants in town. Now they're forty-two. I mean, it's just because you have a lot of disposable income. You work at the mine, you make between seventy and one hundred and twenty-five thousand. And these are guys with you know between an eighth and a twelfth grade education. So it's a wonderful opportunity for 
for a working guy, especially if he got kind of a raw deal in life, there's a, and you're a hard worker. Unbelievable. You know, when I hired guys, when I had a big construction business, I hired scraper operators, which is a machine that drives along and picks up dirt and moves it. And some kids show up from South Dakota, and, and from and I'd say, what's your background? He said, well, I grew up on a farm in, in wherever, South Dakota. Bell Food, South Dakota. I'd say, you're hired. And that kid would work from 6 in the morning until 6 at night. And I'd say, okay, we're done. We're going. Well, he said, there's plenty of daylight. Let's work a couple more hours. That was the whole attitude. I mean, it was it's just a working place. And then all of a sudden, you come from extreme poverty. I mean, all these guys literally had no, no floor in their house. They had no water, no plumbing. It was, it was about how my father grew up. My father grew up with no no plumbing and no electricity. But these guys did too. Well, they come here and all of a sudden they're making 60000 or $70,000. It doesn't always translate well to, to happiness and success. All of a sudden they're at the bars. All of a sudden they're, they've stopped being the father of the year. All of a sudden they're, they're doing drugs. I mean, it was, it was a very rough adjustment. Still is. So there's a touch of the Wild West out there. There is. I mean, when I came here in the seventies, I, I don't drink anymore. But I, I, I you know, I go. To the, I drank a lot in those days, and um, we go to the bar, and I'd say there was a shooting every three or four weeks. I mean, it was uh, you'd duck. It was like you know, like when when the when the president's speaking and you hear a loud noise, they duck. Well, that's how it was in the bars. <laughs> you never knew if they were shooting that year or one of their friends. You never do. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty rustic, but I. You got to remember, Bill. You grew up in a, in a much different household than I did. My dad worked in the boatyard and made three dollars an hour. It, it was a different world that you grew up in than I grew up in. I remember when my father came out here; he'd come out and visit, and stay for a few months, which is really fun. All through, and he was great with the kids. You know, he's a he's a great guy. He was a great guy. He's gone now, but he was a wonderful dad. But anyway, he'd come out. I'll never forget. We're driving out to the mine, and and uh, I said. Oh, so I said, Dan, I got to drive you past all this equipment. I'm pretty proud of it. And you drive for about two miles, and it was a line of equipment at the end of the day. But six o'clock, we always quit work. And so we drive in about two miles worth of equipment. And he said, Well, who owns all this? I said, Well, I do. He said, You can't own this stuff. That's not true. I said, Well, who do you think owns it? But in his world, he couldn't. He couldn't believe that, and I couldn't believe it sometimes either. To be honest. I mean, I thought I was going to work in the boatyard my whole life. I worked in the summers, even at, at college, and, and uh, I worked one summer on Wall Street. But the other summers, I wanted to work in the boatyard. I thought I was going to be boatyard work till I downed Perfectly happy. So, well, that boatyard brought you a nice worth work ethic. It did. It did. Well, Dad, wake us up at four in the morning. He said, "There's a big hurricane, big storm coming. We got to tie down boats." You get up, we'll drink some, that's why I hate coffee to this day, make us drink black coffee so we could be clear-headed. And we, my brother and I get up, we off the boat yard, we'd go. But it was some of the fondest days of my life. Dick, we've, we've run out of time. Let our listeners know you've been listening to me talk to Dick Morey from Gillette, Wyoming, and an entrepreneur, someone who has helped many, many young people. That's going to do it for the local edition tonight, but that's not it for this conversation. We'll be back with more next month for part two of this conversation. I'm, I'm Bill Williams. This is the Kingfisher Project, and thank you all for listening to Radio Catskills. Okay, thank you so much, Bill. This is the local edition. Stay right where you are, because coming up at 7, we've got Mr. Kusar Grace and the Music Emporium. Before that, The Daily is up next. This is Radio Catskill.
Support comes from the Women's Health Center in Homesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. NACL Theater Highland Lake. Innovative performance and community action. NACL.org. And from listener donations at WJFFradio.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA, The Archivists, a special look into the people and one particular place that's devoted to preserving Latino history. One of those paternalistic ideas was what museums were doing too, this sort of land grab mentality. We can take care of it better than the people in the country of creation. That's this week on Latino USA. Thursday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The superintendent of a juvenile detention center in Tennessee locks away minors in solitary confinement. What what we do is treat everybody like we're in here for murder. You don't have any problems if you do that. Except it's illegal. What can the state do when a jail breaks the rules? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. 